me in reading from Hebrews chapter chapter 7, but we'll actually start reading in verse 19 of chapter 6. And tonight is the night we've been waiting for for the last few weeks. We get to meet an interesting fella named Melchizedek. And I mentioned that to one of my daughters uh, a few minutes ago, and she said, who on earth is Melchizedek? I've never heard of Melchizedek in my life. And so evidently that must not be one of the, the lessons you learn in master clubs. You get the little ribbon for learning about Melchizedek. He's only mentioned twice in all of the Old Testament. He's mentioned in Genesis for a few verses, and then he's mentioned in one of the Psalms in just one verse, and nowhere else is he mentioned. He doesn't come up until you're reading in the New Testament here in Hebrews, and nowhere else in the New Testament outside of Hebrews do we learn about Melchizedek. He's not prominent, but he is a very important figure, and so all of chapter 7 really has to do with introducing and and, uh, helping us understand uh, him and, and, and what he's, what's meant to be accomplished in this character. And so let's, uh, let's look at that together today. We sang the song, We Have an Anchor, just a moment ago as we started our service. And you may recall that last week we understood that we do have an anchor for the soul in verse 19, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul because we can trust what God has said. We can trust His promise, His immutable Word. So we have Hope, like an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. And as I may say so, Levi also, who, hath, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Let's take just a moment and be reminded about what Hebrews is. It's a very important book of the Bible. It's written particularly to Hebrew Christians, those who were followers of Christ, had heard the gospel and had received it, and uh, there was fruit in their life of following Christ. And 
they had a history of having relied upon all the things that we read about in the first part of our Bible, the temple worship, the priesthood, uh, uh, thinking much of Moses and going to the synagogue. And so for them to follow Christ, particularly when what was going to happen to the temple, it was going to be destroyed. What were the religious leaders doing? Oftentimes they were resisting the gospel. And so it was a very messy, complicated time. Uh, we can imagine for those who were following Christ, who had families and backgrounds for centuries that went back to that system. But Hebrews is written to them. It's beautifully written. Uh, it's, very, it's just very rich in, it, in the way it begins and how we read it. And it is a reference in many ways to the first part of our Bibles, to the Old Testament. There's something like 80 different references or direct quotes that go back to the book of Psalms or Genesis or even like we're doing tonight, we're learning about Melchizedek. And we find that in every verse of Scripture, there's a thread that leads us to Jesus, to either a foreshadowing of Christ as we're looking ahead to the propheticness of Jesus' coming, or we look to the uh, back at Christ, we learn about what He did, for example, in the Gospels, or we look ahead to Christ's return, for example, and they all lead us to Christ. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter number 5, Verse 17, and I'll just read it to you, but he said this as he was coming into beginning his ministry and he was preaching and he was surprising a lot of people in how he came, even though he was fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament, it still was a surprise to many of the religious leaders that Jesus came the way he did, born, uh, born in, a, in, a, in Bethlehem and laid in a manger. He said this, he said, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, he said, I don't want you to think as I come and as I begin the ministry that I'm here to destroy Moses and the Pentateuch and the law that, that God had given through Moses or the prophets. We think of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations and all of those. He said, I haven't come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. Well, what that sentence means has been the object of a lot of study. And Hebrews helps us to understand what that means. How Jesus comes not to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill. To be a Christian was to follow the faith of the fathers. Uh, you can imagine for a Jew who had had handed down to him all the different feasts and all the different teaching in synagogue and all the different lessons that they had been taught about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Isaiah and, and King David and uh, going to the temple and singing all the psalms. They, they had experienced this richly. Many of them had. And so to be a Christian was simply to take that heritage and to see how it was fulfilled in Jesus. But there was a choice to make. They had to make a choice about who they were following, what they were trusting in. Because there was a time when they relied upon the priest, for example, to represent them to God. They would go to the temple and they wouldn't be able to enter in, but they would trust the priest to take the sacrifice and sacrifice it on their behalf and go into the Holy of Holies once a year and, and put the blood on the mercy seat. And all of these things they, they relied upon, and now those things were, were going away. Christ had already come, and so they needed to make a choice to follow Christ, even though it would be difficult. You ever have to make a hard decision in your life? 
You ever uh, felt like, I don't know which decision to take, which way it's going to go. If I, I make this decision, I feel like it's better, but I'm going to disappoint some people. Or if I make this decision, I'm going to dis- disappoint another group of people. And, and, and I don't necessarily know what God wants me to do. And so making decisions is one of the more challenging things we do in life. Wouldn't you agree? We, spend, we lose sleep about these things. These readers were called to make a choice. They needed to understand what it meant to follow Christ. It meant something of an exchange, letting go of one thing in order to embrace fully something else. And most of you here only have two hands. Most of you do have two hands. There's only so much you can carry. There's only so many places you can be at one time. For most of us, that's one place at one time. And so if you say, I'm going to go one place, that means you're saying, I'm not going to go to all the other places. I'm going to marry one person, that means you're not going to marry all the other persons. And so it is to follow Christ. They, it meant letting go of the old covenant in their reliance upon it, the shadows, and they were to ask to cling to the substance, who Jesus was, the reality of Christ, that in Christ dwells the Godhead bodily. In Christ is full and complete salvation to everyone who believes. They were going to trade a Jerusalem temple for a heavenly one. They were going to trade, at some level, a Jewish nation for a Christian family that would grow and be more expansive than just simply what they had had grown accustomed to. They were going to leave behind what, in many cases, was a ritual in order to have a personal relationship with God in Christ. We talked before about maybe the three different groups of people being written to, how as this letter would have been read, the sermon would have been preached, and, and that you have the audience, perhaps we could divide the audience into three different groups. We could potentially divide them into Hebrew Christians who were being encouraged to follow Christ even though there was persecution and doubts. They were in a place and in a time in their life where there were lots of different pulls and pushes and persecutions. And they were being told, follow Christ. In Christ, you have everything you need, and and you can find your satisfaction in Him and follow Him fully and embrace everything that means. And we even see Peter having struggling, right, with with fellowshipping with Gentiles. And there was just a lot going on there. And so they're being encouraged to know exactly what it meant to have Christ, meant to have the fulfillment of all of those other things. There were also, perhaps the second category, could, could be something like the intellectually convinced They had heard the gospel, but perhaps hadn't yet made that step of faith to trust in Christ for themselves. They were aware of these things, but they were being encouraged to, as it it were, cast an anchor, put their faith in Christ. And then the third group could be potentially the intellectually unconvinced. They uh, needed to believe the gospel. They had to learn some things about who Jesus was and what it meant for him to be fulfillment of all of these Old Testament things. And they needed to believe the gospel, lest the wrath of God abide upon them. And so this, there is an audience of maybe perhaps uh, some different people who are hearing this. And uh, they were learning that Jesus fulfills all the pictures and all the different signs that needed to be fulfilled in Christ. Jesus fulfills those things. And he fulfills what we read about in the first part of our Bibles. We already learned as we read Hebrews that Jesus is better than angels. Angels are impressive, but Jesus is greater than even an angel who uh, we might be uh, amazed at. 
He's greater than Moses, who is the great lawgiver, and the people, they had heard the stories of how God had used Moses to split the Red Sea and all the, all the plagues in, 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 in Egypt and had led them in the wilderness when God provided for them. And, and Moses was the striking character in their history. Jesus was greater than Moses. Moses was a servant, and Jesus is the son. He's greater than Joshua. Joshua was a leader who led them in mighty victories in the battle of Jericho where they walked around Jericho and the walls fell down. And, Jericho, and Joshua helped divide up the land and they really relied on Joshua's leadership. But that didn't go real well. Joshua leads the judges and there's a lot of friction and a lot of paganism and a lot of idolatry and they never have the rest that only Jesus can provide and then we are, we're learning that Jesus is greater than Aaron. Aaron was the brother of, of uh, Moses, and Aaron uh, was a Levite, as Moses was, but Aaron was going to be given the role of priest appointed by God, and it was going to be his sons that would be the high priests, and it would be the tribe of Levite that would be the priests. And so Jesus, as priest, we were introduced to, is different than Aaron. And that's what we're learning about here in chapter number seven, and really the whole chapter uh, speaks to this. And so let's first meet Melchizedek. We have this in verse number one, where it's mentioned, it says, for this Melchizedek. Uh, we already had it brought up at the end of chapter six that Jesus was the order of Melchizedek. If you recall, in chapter uh, five it was, right, where, where uh, we were introduced that Jesus was also of the order of Melchizedek, but then he took a whole chapter there to explain some different things about being babies in Christ and needing to grow and, and all of that. And now he's coming back to it, and he talks about Melchizedek. Melchizedek is just mentioned twice, except for Hebrews, in the entire Bible. And so let's look at where he's really described in Genesis chapter 14. So take a moment, if you can, and let's go ahead and read in Genesis chapter 14. So we're going to go all the way back to the early part of, uh, of our Bible. And we're going to go back to Abraham before he had uh, his children. And just to be reminded of where we're at here, Abraham had a nephew named Lot. <clears throat> And there came a time and place where Abraham and Not, Lot, although they traveled together and had a close relationship, their flocks were growing, as you recall, and uh, they couldn't occupy the same real estate at the same time without there being a lot of friction. What did they say? Too many chefs ruin the soup or something like that? I'm not sure exactly how that goes. You can only have one mom in the kitchen, Is something, something like that. And so they were getting, they were getting uh, it, it, it uh, they didn't have enough real estate between them. And so Abraham allows Lot the choice of where he's going to go take his flocks and, and that group. And they end up going to a place um, close to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, there's a whole bunch of kings get together and some different battles are taking place. And uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, they're actually taken captive. Lot is taken captive and in verse number 14, when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. 
So here's Abram, and he has 318 men who were trained, who worked for him and helped take care of the, uh, his belongings. His, uh, as, a, as a shepherd, just had a lot of cattle. Verse 15, and he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. So something really profound has happened here. Um, he, uh, he, he hears that there has been taken captive, all these people have been taken captive, the women have been taken captive, the goods have been taken captive, and Lot has been taken captive, and so he takes it upon himself to immediately pursue, God blesses that, and he recaptures all of these things. All right, that leads us up to verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of the and I don't know how to pronounce this word particularly well, but let's try it. Cherdalomer, and the kings that were with him, and all the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him. That is, Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And he blessed be, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand, and he gave him tithes of all. That's it. That's Melchizedek. He had this interaction with Abram, and something was pictured in who, Abra, in who Melchizedek was in this interaction with Abram that has profound implications for us today, certainly for the readers of Hebrews. Well, there's one other place where Melchizedek is mentioned, and that's worth our time reading as well. And we'll, we'll pull this all together, Lord willing. Psalm 110. So let's turn to Psalms 110. This is the one other place Melchizedek is mentioned. And this particular psalm of David is quoted widely in, in, in the New Testament throughout the Bible. It would have been very, very familiar to uh, someone from my from a Jewish background, a Hebrew. And we see quickly that this psalm does picture Jesus. Verse 1, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And we see that with God the Father can speak to God the Son and, and place him on his right hand. And verse 2, The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, and the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we see then that in Hebrews, we, when we are reading, the, the author of Hebrews is helping the people who would have been familiar with both of these passages connect this as a figure or as a type of Jesus Christ. This Melchizedek to whom Abram had this interaction with, the father of the Jewish nation, and also then in Psalms where Jesus is connected to this order of Melchizedek. He's not mentioned anywhere else other than Hebrews in these two places, but he has something important to teach us. And some have looked at this story about this figure of Melchizedek and have come to at least two different conclusions. One is that Melchizedek is a theophany. He is a manifestation of God. He has uh, 
in a miraculous way appeared in, in the life of Abram to perform this interaction uh, in response to that victory of Abraham and Abraham's faith and all that was going on so that Melchizedek, who is the king of righteousness and uh, the priest of the Most High God, is actually an appearance of God, a theophany. And this did happen in, in, in the Bible. Or it's also possible that Melchizedek, some have said, is a, was a historical figure. He was a king. He was a king in this land, and he was a priest in this land, and in that interaction he had with Melchizedek, he was a human person who had this interaction, who was also a king. Either way, whether a theophany or a historical figure, either way, it's clear that he is in Scripture. The reason we're reading about him, the reason he's referenced in Hebrews, the reason he's referenced in Psalm, the reason he has an appearance in the book of Genesis, the reason he's in our Bible, and we're talking about him today, is that he represents in a very profound way, Jesus Christ. Melchizedek points to, is a figure of, or is a type of, we call it, I guess, typology, Jesus Christ. And as we read in verse number 2, we learn a little bit more about Melchizedek. So Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 3. It describes Melchizedek and says, Without father, without mother, Without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, was made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. So this Melchizedek we read about, we never read about a birthday. We don't read an obituary about when he died and left behind children. Uh, we don't even read about a retirement party where she was... Uh, it was understood and it was actually demanded that after a certain age, a, a priest could no longer serve as priest. He was forced to retire. And with Melchizedek, we never read or learn anything about that. There's no father recorded, no mother, without any children, no beginning of days, no end of days, but was made like unto the Son of God, and he abideth a priest continually, always a priest. And we learn that he was the king of Salem and the priest of God. We see that back in verse number one. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the holy God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Were there people who worshipped God, the true God, who were not of the family of Abraham? Well, we learn about a few people in the Bible. In particular, we learn about a, a fellow named Job, we don't know exactly how Job was connected with uh, the Jewish nation, but Job certainly worshipped God. We learn about all the different events that took place in his life and even the interaction he had with God and how God had blessed him and how he worshipped God and offered sacrifices on the behalf of all of his children. And so we do have a character like Job to look at. And we have also a person named Melchizedek who wasn't of the tribe. He wasn't a child of Abraham. He, he, was, uh, he, he existed separately from that. It is interesting that it says that he was the king of Salem, and Salem means peace. And it perhaps has a, a connection with Jerusalem. Salem was an ancient name for Jerusalem, and so he comes from that part of the world. He is known as the king of Salem and the priest of God. And that's what it says in verse number one, king of Salem, priest of God. Melchizedek means king of righteousness, king of righteousness and the king of Salem means the king of peace. And so it's important to understand the connection between 
what it means to be the king of righteousness and also the king of peace. Shalom, and I think we think of the word shalom often here today, in that meaning of peace means more than maybe what we think about it today. And so it's my understanding that commonly when we talk about peace, we might just say, hey, the kids have been crazy all day. Can I just please have a moment of peace? Or perhaps we say, well, this was a peaceful morning because all the kids slept in or something like that. Um, But peace here had even a, a far deeper meaning than just simply an absence of conflict for a few minutes or the absence of the kids going crazy for a few minutes, or work just went smoothly. The the idea of peace here, it was very rich. It had the idea of real satisfaction, of true blessing, where one is at peace with the world. One is at true satisfaction in terms of, of what's going on in the world around them, and in particular, peace with God. If you would turn with me, and we're looking at several scriptures, but turn and look with me at the book of Romans, the book of Romans. Romans is a very important letter written to Christians in Rome. And it talks about how a person can be justified with the holy God despite the reality of our sin. It talks a lot about sin, but it talks about the gift of God that is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And in, verse, in chapter 5 and verse 1, it, it says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Very important verse in the book of Romans where we have learned all about what it means to be the enemy of God and how we're justified in Christ. And then he concludes by saying, now we know that in Christ we have peace with God. We are at one with God. There's nothing problematic between in God. There's not a distance between us and God. And that happens through our Lord Jesus Christ. We know the love of God in Christ. Our sin is covered. We're, we're, we're at peace with God. And it says it this way in verse number seven, for scarcely would a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God, God commendeth or showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we're saved from wrath with God and we have peace with God all in the Lord Jesus Christ. For righteousness to be associated with peace is very important because God is holy So how can sinful people have peace with the holy God if there's not righteous? How can a criminal have peace with the law enforcement agency? How can a criminal have peace with the judge who's tasked by the society to make sure that criminals and and, and criminal behavior is dealt with? Well, it has been taken care of in Christ, and so now it's all on the table. It's all been fully acknowledged. It's all been taken care of. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing pushed under the covers. There's nothing hiding in the closet. It's all been addressed. We're sinners. God loved us even though we were yet sinners, and in faith we have peace with God. And so this king of righteousness and the king of peace is really profound. In verse number 2, it says that, to this king of righteousness and to this king of peace, Abraham gave a tenth part of all the spoil. First being interpreted, and it gives his name, king of righteousness, that is Melchizedek, his name, and after that, king of Salem, which is king of peace. 
Well, in verse number three, now we learn that he had no pedigree, right? We're reminded he had no father, no mother without descent, having no beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. I'm going to read one more verse for you in just a moment, but there was only one tribe of which people were allowed to be the priest. And it was very, very important that you could prove in your genealogy that you were indeed a Levite or you were indeed of the lineage of Aaron. It was absolutely critical. In, fa- in fact, in Nehemiah, when Nehemiah helps lead a, uh, a return back to Jerusalem, and they're allowed to build the walls, and they're reestablishing all the different uh, things that, that made Jerusalem what it was, uh, they were asking for priests. They needed priests to continue to, 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 to develop and uh, handle all that sacrificial ceremonial system. And it says in Nehemiah chapter 7 and verse 64, it, it gives a list of all these different men all these different people, and it said these sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore were they as polluted put from the priesthood. That meant if you couldn't prove that you were a Levite, if you couldn't prove genealogically who your father was and who his father was and take it back and prove even after all that captivity that you were indeed allowed to be a priest, you were, you were not allowed. You had to prove it. And because these folks looked around and tried to find their ancestry and couldn't, even though they knew they were priests, uh, Levites, they were not allowed to be a part of the priesthood. So that's a Levitical priesthood that we have in the law and that was reverenced, revered by the people. And now we meet Melchizedek. Melchizedek didn't have a genealogical record. We don't know who his dad was or children or anything like that, but he was indeed a priest. And so that takes us from meeting Melchizedek to understanding something of the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood. And what, what, what we're learning about is the tithe or the tenth. Tithe means tenth, and Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. And we see that in verse number four. <clears throat> now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. And so we have a reminder about what the tithe accomplished for the nation of Israel. Levi was not given a a geographical place like all the other tribes were. If you were the tribe of Benjamin, this was your area. You helped conquer it, you occupied it, and this is where the tribe of Benjamin lived. If you were the tribe of Judah, this is the area where you occupied, and this was your land, and it was very important that you had the landmarks that that specified whose family this belonged to. And the entire place of Canaan, the entire promised land, was divided up in this way, except for Levi. Levi didn't get land. And so they couldn't really grow crops. They couldn't settle quite the same way the other people could. And so how did they survive? How were they supposed to survive? How was, the, how was the priesthood supposed to take care of their families? How was the temple supposed to be maintained? And, and bills paid. The things requires shelter and food and all of these things. And, and that had to be paid for in some way. And so it was paid for by the tithe. 
So the other tribes would pay a tithe, and that tithe would take care of the, the, the temple system, the ceremonial system, and the uh, tribe of Levi were the ones who were the recipients of that tithe from all of the other tribes or from Levi's brothers. Well, in this particular case, before any of that was established, before the law was written, before Moses, while Abraham was still back here with Lot, he will give a tenth tell to Melchizedek. And it's profound that Abraham, the father of the entire nation, would make this effort to give it to Melchizedek as if Melchizedek now is representing Abraham to God as priest and king. Well, we see that Melchizedek, secondly, not only does Abraham pay him a tithe, but Melchizedek blesses Abraham. This might not mean anything to us today because if if two people meet each other, it doesn't really matter who says hello first, right? Or how do you do first? It, it doesn't particularly matter to us today. But back in, in this time, it was very, very important who had the role of blessing the other. As we recall, Joseph is the one who blessed his children and blessed his grandchildren. It was Jacob who, who gave the blessing to his children. And it was very important, so much that Esau and Jacob were fighting over this. I'm sorry, for, uh, for uh, Isaac. And so it was a very monumentous thing that in verse number 6, we see that it was Melchizedek who blesses Abraham and not Abraham blessing Melchizedek. It says in verse number 6, six um, it says that he, he, he blessed him that had the promises. Melchizedek blessed Abraham in verse 7. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed by the better. So the more important, the better, the superior the more significant blesses the lesser. And in this case, it's Melchizedek who blesses Abraham. What an interesting, what an interesting little note that we read about once in Genesis. And now Hebrews is helping us understand exactly the depth and meaning there of who Jesus is and how Melchizedek is one of these types, one of these pictures that points us all the way to what God was already intending to provide and did provide in Christ. Going back into verse number 8 and 9, we come back to the tithe, and now we, he points out that not only did Abraham pay a tithe to Melchizedek, and not only did Melchizedek bless Abraham, but also Levi tithed to Melchizedek. Well, how does Levi, who hasn't been born, pay a tithe to Melchizedek? Well, he says it in verse number 8. He says, here men that die receive tithes. That is the Levites. They receive the tithe, but eventually they die. But there he receiveth them, of whom it is witness that he liveth. So we have no record that Melchizedek died, and so he received a tithe. But in verse 9 it says, and, I, and as I may say so, listen carefully, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. How did Levi pay tithes in Abraham? For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And so he's saying, if you want to understand how important, how meaningful Melchizedek was, we have to just keep in mind a few things. One is that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. He deferred to Melchizedek. He did what we typically do to priests, and we revere the priesthood, and we respect the priesthood, and we always have as Jews... Abraham paid this tithe to Melchizedek. Not only that, it was Melchizedek who was the one to say, Abraham, while you're here, let me bless you. 
and how profound that was. And then not only that, if we think about it, Levi was already in the loins of Abraham. He was going to be born uh, generationally later. And before he was even born, as Abraham is paying the tithe to Melchizedek, we see as if it's some sort of umbrella here that it all goes back to Melchizedek as a whole different tier of priesthood and more important, more timeless than even the temporary order of the Levitical priesthood. All right, well, that's very interesting. Let's move on now to verse number 11. And here we see the imperfection of the Levitical priesthood. And we learn that peace with God, <clears throat> a representing of men to God in a complete way, in a satisfactory way, in a way that wouldn't have to be done again, and again, and again, and again, and again, was impossible to be accomplished, ever accomplished, in the Levitical priesthood. And the priestly system, the ceremonial system that they had grown accustomed to, that they had loved, that they had relied on a priest to go represent them, and a priest of Aaron to go represent them in the temple, to represent them to God, that was done away with. In fact, we have this interesting conversation in John chapter 4. We have Jesus who uh, ends up by himself. The other 12 are gone, and he ends up sitting at a well, and it's a Samaritan woman in Samaria who comes, and the Samaritans had no dealings with the Jews, and there was separate, separate places of worship. And Jesus has this conversation with her about living water. We sang about living water in our second song. And the woman said to Jesus, she says, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers, the Samaritans, worshipped in this mountain, Mount Gilead. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So you, you think it's Jerusalem and the temple's there and all of that. That's where the high priest is. But we think it's Mount Gilead. We've, we've been pushed away from the Jewish nation and we have our own sort of system of worship. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father seeketh such to worship Him. And God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. And Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And so when we read in verse number 11, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest that should rise after the order of Melchizedek? and not be called after the order of Aaron? Well, it's a question, something of a rhetorical question, because the answer is there wouldn't be another need. But the reality is the Levitical priest could, could not provide salvation. It could not provide anything eternal. It could not provide satisfaction for our sin. We continue to sin, and the Levitical system uh, didn't provide that, that completion. And turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 11. Well, let's read verse 
1. If you have your, your Bible there, we'll read verse 1, and then we'll skip over to verse 11. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, it says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, <clears throat> and not the very image of those things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year by year by year, I added a few in there, but you get the point, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. And then verse number 11, it says, And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Jesus isn't a priest like the Levitical priests. He's not a priest like the Aaronic priesthood in that Day after day, year after year, sacrifices would continually need to be sacrificed. There's religions today, I think of Catholicism and the constant need. I grew up next to a, a, a Catholic church and had a Catholic neighbor in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and we'd have some of these conversations, but the constant need, as it were, to, for Jesus to die on the cross again or, 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 or sort of re-sacrifice Him and transubstantiation and all of these things through the Mass. No, it's been once and for all taken care of. There's a very different way in which Jesus has once and for all offered a sacrifice for sin and will never need to be done again. And it provides salvation for whoever would believe. What the Hebrew Christians had to grapple with is that the priesthood that they valued, the law they reverenced, these things were insufficient to bring them lasting salvation. They needed a better priest than Aaron could be. They needed a better king than David could provide. They needed a more efficacious sacrifice than those made year after year after year, day after day after day, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lambs and bullocks. And we learned that Religion and ritual can, in some ways, bring us comfort for a while. We could be part of a club, for example, that we could start here in Eton. We could call it the Eton Tennis Club. We could have a lot of friends, right? We could have some sort of community that we create around the Eton Tennis Club. We could have a code of conduct. These are the words you can say. These are the words you can't say. Uh, this is how you need to take care of your family if you're going to be a part of this club. And we could try to promote all the good ethics that we could come up with. The reality is every member of the tennis club would die one, at one point. The, the, it wouldn't provide life. It wouldn't provide an atonement for sin. Everyone in the club would die, and everyone in the club needed Jesus. And so what the readers of Hebrews needed to understand is that they needed to be willing to let go of all this other stuff in order to receive Christ and follow Him fully. They need to be anchored in Christ in such a way that when all the other storms and pulls of life caught them and pulled on them, that they were anchored in Christ and that wasn't something that they would ever have to drift from. And there was a lot of temptations and a lot of persecution and a lot of doubts and a lot of voices. And even today, we need to be reminded that in Christ is where our salvation rests. He's our Savior, and not anyone else, not any other person, not any other religious system, not a church, not family, but Jesus Christ. We trust in Him. It was He who made atonement of Himself 
once and for all and sitting at the right hand of God. Christ's priesthood is eternal, and it will never end. It doesn't require an election cycle. We never have to say to our children, you know, things are good now, but I'm really worried about the future. Maybe, maybe this moment of having peace with God will end because Jesus is a priest, but it was just temporary. We don't know what the next step will be. Or, or we can look around and say, wow, I, I, I feel okay with God. He's not bothering me right now, but I don't know about what the future will hold. No, we can have peace with God, full peace, lasting peace, eternal peace, because Christ's priesthood will never end. He's not a priest like the Levitical priest, no matter how good they were and how helpful they were and how important it was to teach every generation of, of a Jewish boy and girl what it meant to need a sacrifice for sin and need blood to be shed to cover their sin and, and the brokenness and, and frailty of our, of our own lives and the reality of sin. But once and for all, Jesus has come and taken care of it and accomplished it. Well, the question for the Hebrews is the same question for us, I think. What is it that we're holding on to or trusting in or anchored to that we're not prepared to let go of in order to anchor ourselves in Christ? What is holding you back from following Christ fully, for trusting in the immutable promises of God and giving your heart to the Lord and following Him fully. We, we have a tendency to want to hold back. We have a tendency to want to reserve. We have a tendency to care very much about our, our comfortable systems or our, our rituals or uh, the people. But to trust Christ fully is the way to know true righteousness and to know true peace, peace with God. It's often true that you have to let go of one thing to say yes to another. And the encouragement is just let go of whatever you have to in order to take and follow Christ fully. Let's pray.